Father, I pray in your precious name, thank you for um, not really making it very certain about what this morning was going to be like until now. God, I pray for words that aren't on pages. God, for um, your heart, your word to be spoken. Guard words. Father, guard my lips and my mind, my thinking. May it be yours. And uh, God, we rely upon you. As we've heard so often this morning. God, we are needy. We are broken, um, oftentimes not clear-thinking people. God, I pray you'd help us to love you, to love you more. Teach us how to love you more, because we can't in ourselves. Thank you for your word. God, it's so rich. It's so good for us. I pray that we'd be watered by it this morning. God, we'd be fed and filled up. As impossible as it is to imagine, God, to the fullness of the Godhead, you tell us it's the possibility of what you want to do in us, finite, broken people that can be filled up to all the fullness of the Godhead is incredible. It's almost unbelievable, Father. And it is in ourselves, and we can't. And we thank you for what you'll do this day in Jesus' name. Amen. We're still in Titus. We're just not going to get very far. Um, yeah. So... I'm going to stick with this for a few minutes and then we'll, we'll jump off. Thank you for your patience here. So as we begin looking at this passage from Titus this morning, um, I want to jump to the last of the five verses that we're not going to look totally at today in chapter 2 that set the stage for us. And first, though, Titus was probably, a, he was, we know he was a Gentile, an early convert of Paul. You know, Paul, when he came to know Christ, didn't he tells us he didn't immediately go to Jerusalem or run to Peter and those guys. He did meet with Peter, I think, in James. But it says, that this is fascinating, he went away for, for what turned out to be, I think, three or three years or so, he went to Arabia. It's, and then after a period of 14 years, that's quite a good discipleship time, don't you think? Like 17 years before he actually came back to Jerusalem and met with the apostles. And that's a God-shaped Paul uh, in a desert place. And there's some, uh, some beauty to that. Um, so uh, Titus was probably one of these early converts in that possibly that 14-year time that he was away and before he started in like ministering uh, like publicly. And Paul, Paul spoke very highly of Titus, uh, a, lot, a lot with the Corinthian church. If you read Corinthians, you'll see Titus's name pop up many times uh, in, that, uh, in that particular, in those letters uh, to help. And then now Paul has left him in Crete to be the leader of that church, to appoint elders. It says in verse 5, chapter 1, For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And uh, so we have three of these New Testament, uh, what are called pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that Paul wrote letters to pastors, these young guys, 
to say, here's, here's some do's and don'ts. You need to be doing this. And, and, uh, and in these letters, Paul would encourage these men to be bold. To, and in verses, uh, verse, <clears throat> verse, first verse of chapter 2, uh, we see this uh, in verse 1. It says, but as for you, chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, Titus, he's saying, proclaim the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, the last of these verses we're going to look at, verse 15, these things, and this is important for us, and it ties into what we're looking at. These things, what we're about to consider in just a moment, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Those are some powerful words. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one is to disregard you. Two things in particular are this idea of exhorting and rebuking. Um, Titus was told to exhort, which is a word that means to call upon someone to do something in the present, like right now. And so I want us to be thinking about these two words because as we sit here this morning, some of us may need exhortation and some of us may need rebuking. And that's not a, 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 a lashing or a beating. It's true to the love of Christ who wants to get in our faces and basically say, what are you doing? What are you doing? So exhort means to call upon someone to do something in the present now. It's stronger than, than just like asking somebody or desiring someone to do something. It's going beyond that. It's a command. It's saying this is what you got to do. And to rebuke means, which is really a stronger word, it means to convict, to show to be wrong. It's what Paul did with Peter when Peter was acting cowardly. And he said, and he just called him out. He said, you, you, you coward. Uh, that's a pretty strong rebuke. And Peter took it. It was a good thing. So it's to convict, to, to rebuke is to convict or to show someone to be an error. And so maybe that's, you know, as we look at these verses this morning, some of us will need exhorting uh, and some of us will need rebuking. And so embrace it all. Be thankful for every bit of it. Um, very much as we talked about the Holy Spirit a couple of weeks ago in, in, in the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It, it, thank God for that. Embrace that. Welcome that. Re welcome ex exhortation. Welcome being rebuked by God's word, by his Holy Spirit. It's all, you know, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father in heaven, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's all good. God wants to do good things in his people's lives. Do they hurt sometimes? Sure. Um, I want to pray again. Because I want us to pray about pride and humility. Because that's what being exhorted and being rebuked are going to cause the claws to come out when we're cornered, when we like, you know, I don't like the way that makes me feel. We get defensive. Would you pray with me? God, we come against um, proud thoughts in the name of Jesus. God, I rebuke proud thoughts. Attitudes, God, responses that are just so designed to push away, God, what you want to do in my life and in our lives. God, we ask you to keep us and help us be humble, to be teachable. God, to come to you with our hands up and open. God, to receive what you want to say to us today. God, if proud thoughts start to arise, God, and they will, Make us aware, Father, and we can just rebuke those thoughts as they arise. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As Lee and I were driving home, this is so perfect. As we were driving home from South Carolina this past uh, Friday, we stumbled across, and I hadn't heard focused on the family, and I can't tell you how long. I don't even know if it was recorded or what. James Dobbs, it didn't sound like he's 900 years old. I don't know whatever, how old James Dobson is these days. But he had a couple on there, and you may have heard of Rob and Diane Parsons of Care for the Family. I hadn't. They're from, from, they have a ministry based in Cardiff, Wales. So worth, worth listening to their accents, which was always beautiful. And they made a statement to this effect. And when I heard this, I thought, wow, that is so true and so rich and so good. So if something to this effect, it was like, you know, I couldn't rewind it on the radio. So I had to go, oh, what was that? So this is my best recollection of how it kind of sounded. And you can ask Lee, and she'll probably give you the verbatim later. Um, the world is full of wealthy, of, excuse me, the world is full of the wealthy and intellectuals who do us little good. I like it already. No, it's not always true. We need to hear from weak people to whom we can respond, hey, that's like me. Simple statement, but how rich. The world is full of wealthy and intellectuals who do us little good. We need to hear from weak people to whom we can respond, hey, that's like me. And Diane writes in another place, I don't mind sharing my lows as well as my highs because I think people want reality. We can all say how wonderful life is and how great I am, but people want to hear what you're like in real life, much like what we've heard today. And it reaches our hearts and should emote compassion and love and kindness. We can all say how wonderful life is and how great I am, but people want to hear what your life like in real life. For me, being vulnerable and honest is what people want to hear. I don't mind talking about myself like that. I am thankful to God that he uses me in this way. I use this example so that we can accept the truth of the reality that all have struggled, are struggling, or will struggle in our journey through life with Christ. And we have to grasp, we have to own the true reality that we cannot be Christ followers without Christ in us. And if you're here today and that's kind of you, and you may not even know it's you, you may need to say, God, if, if I'm not filled with you, if I don't know you in a heart way, if I don't know you beyond just an intellectual, mental thing that I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be a Christian, and it hasn't changed your life, God, show me what I need. Show me yourself. Jesus says to us in John 15, 4 and 5, He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is, this is like baseline foundational truth stuff for why we, how we can live. I am the vine, verse 5 says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it, he it is that bears much fruit. And grab this, for apart from me, you can do nothing. All that we think we're doing, if we're not abiding in him and he in us, is just the best we can do. 
I told a pastor once who told me, you know, he wanted me to know that they weren't a part of the denomination that believed that the Bible was actually God's word. And I, I wanted to say, Jay, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Is this just like humanitarian effort thing you're doing here? It's just, just to help people make, feel better about themselves. What, what do you have to offer people? It's empty. A huge part of gaining victory in struggles that we will are or have had is admitting our inability. This is where the humility comes in, our weakness, our brokenness. Might I even say our failure to follow Christ as he commands? Have you been there? You there now? If not, you will be. We need to be. We need to see this in our lives. It is a, it's a place of saying to yourself to, and to God and to possibly those around you, I can't do it. We need to get to that point where we can't just think we can follow Christ ourselves. And by coming to church, and it's a good place, that's not going to do it. Praying enough is not going to do it. It's this thing called seeking God, seeking Christ. It's a word I've called desire. And you may be here today and you don't even desire that. That's real. It's part of the struggle. Own it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid of it. I don't know how many times I've come to God at his word in a morning and just said, God, I don't, even, I don't feel like being here. And this may happen to you. I can't say that it will or won't because I can't dictate what God does. But in those moments when I've gotten brutally honest with God, it's the Dolby he lands on that because as he said to Israel when, in Isaiah 58 when they were whining and crying about because they'd been praying and fasting and just God wasn't doing anything and they were kind of upset with God about it because they'd been such good little boys and girls and he owed them something. I love that song we sang a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, you don't owe me anything. And they thought God owed them something and they weren't showing up and God said, you call this, a, this is how you fast? This is what you call a fast? He says, but to them, he says, but at least today you're being straight up and real with me. He, had, he, he applauded their stupidity, <laughs> but their realness, or their realness even though it was stupid. We need to admit that we can't. We can't do it. It's, it's praying, dear Father of mercy, compassion, and grace, forgive and heal. Give me strength, your strength, precious, empowering, Holy Spirit, glorify my Savior through me. Do in me what I can't do and never will be able to do myself. So what is it this morning to which God's word might exhort or rebuke? Let's read. In Titus chapter 2, verses, beginning verse 11. I'm going to read through 14. We've already read 15 that says to us, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. I'm asking God to do that in our lives today. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, says verse 11, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. We may not get through all that. That's okay. I cannot adequately express the power and significance or significance of this first point, which is this, if you're taking notes. Grace has arrived. <laughs> Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Turn over to John 1. This is so, so rich. John chapter 1. The Greek word for appeared is Paul uses in Titus for the grace of God has appeared means to show oneself openly or before the people. To come forward, appear with the idea of sudden or unexpected appearing. And we're finding here that the grace of God has appeared. Would you in John 1 verse 14 hear these words? It says, in the word, and that's referring to Jesus, became flesh, and, we dwelt among, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, or we beheld his glory, glories of the only son of the father, or the only begotten of the father. Stop right there and try to stop reading. I may have touched on this in weeks past, but it's okay, it's so, it's so good. And my memory's failing sometimes too, so there. Look at that verse, and I'm seeing a father sending his son. And again, as we've said before, all the things he could have said about him, he says these two things. He's full. If I want you to know about my character as an individual, of all the words that I could choose, God chooses these to say, I want, when they look at you and, and you reflect who the father is, I want them to know it's grace and truth that are high up on the list. In fact, they're the top of the list. He could have said love, or mercy, or justice, kindness, loving kindness, peace, grace and truth. It gets better. Verse uh, 17. Actually, somebody have a Bible here that's actually got a Bible in your hand that's willing to read a, a verse? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, Cheryl, would you read verse 16 real loud, real loud? For of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. Thank you. Can you just think about that for a minute? Would you read it one more time, Cheryl? For of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. If you know Jesus Christ here today, you received a fullness, his fullness. And then he says, and grace upon grace. You can start stacking this up. And then you come to verse 17, where I say it even gets better. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And it, I encourage you to do Bible study. It's not hard in this world we live in to get on the internet and find lexicons in Greek and Hebrew and it tells you, you know, you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew, trust me, but it'll give a, the word in the English and it'll tell you what the Greek word is in case you really want to get, say, have some fun saying some Greek words. And then it'll tell you what this word literally means in the Greek. And when you look at this word realized, it's absolutely fantastic. It means to begin to be, to come into existence. 
that John's telling us that grace and truth came to be, came into existence through Jesus Christ. The world had never seen, had never experienced grace and truth like they did when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the world got to see, behold, the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul reminds us today to know that the grace of God has appeared for you and for me. And when I hear the sharing this morning, there's a crying out for grace. Because we need grace. And we need grace upon grace. And this grace is receiving that, which means it's, it's receiving that which we don't deserve and we, we haven't earned. We can't pray enough to ask for, to, to, as if God were to owe us something for reading the Bible every day or coming to church, you know, twice a, twice a week. He doesn't owe us anything. You can't earn it. I want you to listen as James and Peter talk about grace. James says to us in chapter 1, verses 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. We've heard various trials today. We're all, even if we haven't shared, we're experiencing trials. Trial may come tomorrow that we never thought about today. We don't put trials. It means tripped up by. When we encounter, the word means to be tripped up by. You don't put it on your schedule. You don't calendar. You don't put it on your calendar. You don't plan that automobile accident that you might have, you know, that I trust you, never, you don't have. You don't plan those things. We're, we're tripped up by them. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Peter says this, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Same phrase James uses. Now I want you to see what this is about. This Greek word for various means variegated or multicolored. Manifold is another word that's translated sometimes. Multicolored. So we're looking at, we're looking at multicolored trials. And we need to understand, too, that the word trials, not only does it mean difficult times, but it also means temptations to sin. It's kind of a dual-meaning word. In fact, James, and I really never put that together until I was reading this again this morning when I looked down further into James, he goes on to talk about very clearly the fact that we're being tempted to, to lust, and when lust is conceived, it produces sin. This is very much a temptation to sin that James is referring to. Makes it a little bit different than you, when you just think of, you know, being in a car accident or your kids struggling and those kind of trials, which are very real, to know also that it's that temptation to sin. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There's something good can come out of being tempted because we all know from Romans that God can cause all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we've got this multicolored, multicolored trial. Some of those temptations to sin are very, very, very powerful. And they appeal to the flesh so violently. It's just such a, a 
battle. And then there are those circumstances and trials in life that are just like smashing, crashing, and destroying lives and relationships, families, churches. Peter goes on to say in three chapters later, if you were taking notes and write down references, 1 Peter 1, 6 is this Peter talking about rejoicing. For, in the, if for now, even you have to be distressed by various trials. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 10 to say, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the, get this, multifaceted grace of God. So you go into the Greek and you have some fun there and you realize that the word multifaceted Guess what it means? It means variegated, multicolored. It is the same word that James uses for trials, multicolored trials, and Peter's talking about multicolored trials, but he says there's some multicolored grace out there. So when you're going through that red-hot trial, I'm telling you, God has red-hot grace. <laughs> Grace has arrived. And what exactly does grace for temptations look like? Listen to Paul again. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, says, No temptation, same word James uses, same word Peter uses, trials, temptations, trials, it's interchangeable. It says, No temptation to sin or circumstance in life that is just beating you down has overtaken you, but such is this common to mankind. You're not alone. And God is faithful. Sandwiched in the middle of that verse is the faithfulness of God. God's not out to lunch. He's not forgotten about you. He says his thoughts are more towards you and me than they are the grains of sand on the seashores of this planet. What does that tell me? God is constantly thinking about you. Is that hard to get your head around? Someone that loves you and is always thinking about you. And he says in the Psalms, he says, God will accomplish what concerns me, David says. Isn't that rich? God will accomplish what concerns me. In other words, the things that he knows need to be in my life. I'll supply all your riches according to my glory. To, uh, excuse me, help me. According to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Thank you. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide a way of escape also. So that you will be able to endure it. What often happens is, and there's a couple things we need to be aware of, sometimes the situations and circumstances that come into our lives, we have self-inflicted. And in those situations, very often, we've created the storm. And I'm not saying that God is not able, even in those situations, to redeem and rescue us in, in those situations. I know he can. But when we're going through these and we're not looking to him, I hear this all the time. I hear people in the world say this all the time. Oh, God's not going to give you anything you can't handle. That's true. But you can give yourself stuff that you can't handle. Okay? Bad decisions have bad consequences. 
God had nothing to do with it. <laughs> That's the sad reality. It was all about me and doing what I wanted to do. And it crashes and burns. Can God, what can raise a dying man? Yes. <laughs> the grace of Christ. There is hope because grace has arrived. He says he's going to make a way of escape so that we can endure it. Our problem is when we hit the trials, the circumstances and stuff, we always, what do you want to do when you get under the, under the, under the pressure, when you get under the heat? What are we trying to do? We try to get out of it. Put out the fire. Run here. Go there. See this person. Instead of saying, God, what do you want to do here? And listen to him. So often in his word, he says, but you would not listen. I wanted to do this, but you wouldn't listen. We need to stop and listen. And just say, God, I, I don't want to move until I hear you say something. I'm telling you, I have to believe. I know that's where it tells us he is. God's just waiting. He's just waiting. If I could say God was anxiously waiting, I don't think God anxiously waits. But if I were to put, you know, personify that from a, he's anxiously waiting. Excited, just as that father was on that front porch when that son came home from the pigsty. And he, he didn't sit there and just wait with his arms crossed, whoops, arms crossed, waiting to bust his stupid son's chops. I think that's the most beautiful scene in Scripture. And the son didn't even get to finish what he had practiced saying. So dad cut him off and made plans for the, for the, for the party, for the celebration of the son that was dead but now is alive. You know a fascinating verse, and we may end up stopping right here. After this verse 13, which says, God will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. If you've got your Bibles open, you can read this yourself. But the very next word that God gives Paul to write down for us is this. Therefore, based on the truth of that verse we just read, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Can I give you my little quick definition of idolatry? I, and I hope it's useful. Anything that has mastery over you is that which you are bowing to. Anything that has mastery over us, that is controlling us, I'm bowing to it. And we're told to get away from it, to run from it, remove anything that governs me or controls me, dominates my thinking, dominates my behavior, apart from what and who is my only to be worshiped master. Jesus Christ. That's an abrupt ending. I want to challenge you with this, and then I'll be done. A second point, if you were taking notes, is this. And I may speedily go through these. Is that behavior matters? Grace has arrived. Not even but, but and. 
behavior matters. And Paul mentions here five things that pertain to our behavior. Two are in the negative sense, three are in the positive, and I'm just going to just hit these. He says we're to deny two things. One is ungodliness. It's kind of a generic, all-encompassing word, and it's kind of can be kind of uh, hard to really nail down. But at the end of the day, I would define it as anything that flies against the character of God. Anything that is absolutely in contradiction to the character of God is ungodliness. Paul gives us some indicators. I think Galatians in, in, to, in the letter to the Philippians, finally, brothers and sisters, and I used to say this and I'd say it again, take this passage of scripture, print it off on your little HP printer at home and laminate it and stick it on your refrigerator, stick it on your television, stick it in your book rack, stick it in your magazine rack, put it in your car on the radio dash. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, this is godliness. Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What am I listening to? Pure, lovely, commendable? It's not hard. And ask God to guide you. Say, God, when, you, when, I, when there are things in my life that don't climb into that verse or fit into that verse, would you show me? You realize God and the Holy Spirit is a teacher? And how about any, you teachers in here, when your kids go, yeah, I can talk to my wife about this. She's shared this before. And you teachers, thank you for teaching. And the, the really good teachers, and there are really good teachers, and there are really some not so good teachers. The really good teachers love it, love it, love it when their kids' lights go on and they go, I want to learn. God is like, I think, excited when we want to learn. And so we ask him, teach me. Teach me, God, what ungodliness looks like. If it's in my life, I want it out. That's just, that's David's heart. That's the heart after God, is I don't want that, God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God, that's what I want. And I can't, as we said in the beginning, I can't do that. I can't make that happen. I'd spend the rest of my life studying those two verses and it just in, in, my, in my own strength, trying and trying and trying, and it's going to fail. It's going to be a fail job. Who is my sanctifier? Jesus Christ. Who is my savior? Jesus Christ. Who is my healer? Jesus Christ. And I'm going to stop there for just a reason. <laughs> he says, deny worldly desires. Those desires, lust is the word here, of the world, the spirit of the age, the culture in which we live that is not reflecting the character of God. Those things that estrange us from God. Ungodliness, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Those things of this world that are just appealing to the flesh. And then three things we're supposed to be about, and that is to live sensibly. We are to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. What does it mean to live sensibly? It means to be sober-minded. It means to be uh, rational in our living. And I see this so much in our culture today. Paul says in Romans 1, 20 and 21, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, those that were invisible, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor God, him as God or give thanks, but they became, and I love this phrase, they became futile in their speculations. And their senseless hearts were darkened. They became futile in their reasonings, in their speculations. That what that means is they became vain. They, became, they didn't know how to think rationally anymore. And we see examples of that in our culture today like it's just ridiculous. Abortion's one of them. Who in their right mind would think that's a good thing? The destruction of human life. But we can do that by the millions and go out to the movies at night. Sensibly. What does it mean to live sensibly? It means to stop and think about things. Reason it out. Will this or that bring honor, glory, and praise to God or not? And God has given us the ability to reason. It's a gift from him. And we need to use that righteously to live honestly without injuring anyone. I know it sounds simple, but it's, it's just living out what's right. Don't cheat your neighbor. Don't cheat your government. Don't cheat your spouse or your kids or anybody, neighbors. And then godly, which is living in a way that reflects the, the character of God, the opposite of ungodliness. And remember, with exclamation points, remember that we are, in all capital letters in my notes, not able to live this out without the truth that grace has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ and his abiding in us and we in him. And if you are a true follower of Christ, his Holy Spirit will put you in the know. It will, he will put you in the know about ungodliness and worldly desires and about living sensibly, righteously, and godly. If you have ears to hear. Pray that you have ears to hear. God, open my ears to hear. And Paul tells us that we are to live this way in the present age, now, today. And then he goes on to, place, to a place that maybe we rarely go, is wrapping this up, and that is the realization that Christ will once again come to earth. That's going to be ridiculous. When all this brokenness and all this anger and ugliness and disease is straightened out. And all nature, as the Romans tells us, Paul's letter to Romans says, even nature moans and groans for the day of redemption when Christ comes back and sets nature straight. And then he goes on, as I said, in verse 13, looking for where to be behavior matters, and one of the reasons why is that there is another life. Third point is there is another life. Instruct those, he says, looking ahead for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And I want to talk about this idea real quickly. There is another life. Instruct those, he says, to those who are rich in the present world. Implied that there is a, another world. He said, Paul says to the Corinthians, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 
John Wesley, while in Savannah in the late 1730s, and while looking out over the home of a wealthy businessman, he is said to have responded as he looked out and saw the wealth. I too desire these things. But there is another world. Listen to the words of Peter. Last page. Promise. Regarding the end of the world as we know it now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. I got some stuff I could share. That... Come to the return of the king, and you'll hear some stuff. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? While we, godliness is kind of hard to nail down sometimes, it is an overarching theme of what we're supposed to look like. Looking for and hastening, Peter says, the coming of the day of God. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found in him. Here it is again, this challenge for how we to be, are to be living. Be found in him, in him, in him, in peace, spotless and blameless. He goes on, you therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge, that grace that has arrived, and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And because it is biblical truth, the Christian Missionary Alliance proclaims Jesus Christ to be our coming king. So often, in the essence and the idea of not behaving the way God would have us to behave as his people, so often we do not realize regret until the awards banquet arrives. And I don't know how God's going to do that. Are we going to be able to sense regret in his presence somehow, some way, in a glorified sense, I think we will. Not wishing I had your rewards or you wishing you had mine, but just maybe we'll be swallowed up in the grace of God and it'll be just, it's going to be crazy. I recall two such events in my own life when I look back with regret. There's a bunch of them, quite frankly, but in this sense, both were graduations. Maybe some of you can relate to me. High school, college, where several of my peers had these like cord things hanging off their necks. <laughs> I was lucky to have a robe. I did have a hat. I got a tassel. That was it. I had a great time in school. I had no cords. But as I looked there those days, I'm as smart as these guys. I could have had cords. if I'd only applied myself. But I returned to where we began. Grace has arrived. And it keeps on arriving. Behavior matters. And it keeps on mattering. Because we'll be judged by our Savior one day according to the deeds that we have done. You understand that? Don't ever let that fade away. Over and over again, we're reminded that our deeds matter. Our behavior matters. And lastly, there is another life. 
and it keeps on getting closer. Would you pray with me? God, um, I pray today, I still am just burdened for those who need your grace, God, the grace that has arrived. God, those who've shared hurts and fears and just hurt, deep hurt, longings, anxiousness, God, it is what it is, worry, fear. Oh, God, help them to breathe deeply, this grace that has arrived. To rest, give them rest. God, in knowing that you are a God that redeems, you're a God who rescues. And even in the face of great error and mistakes, grace still arrives. And your mercies are new every morning. God, you know my journal that so often says new day, new mercies. Because I need them. And you're a merciful Father, full of goodness, kindness, who sent your Son to rescue me from the domain of darkness. And transfer me to the kingdom of your dear son. With whom there is redemption. The forgiveness of sin. We thank you for the grace that's arrived. Help us to walk in it. To live in it. Obedient in our behavior before you God. Because it is before you, ultimately, that we walk. But God, so that a world can see you in us. And then, oh God, the day that you return, it's coming. And we look forward to that day. Help us, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.